Dr. Krishan Ramdu, CEO and founder of Timper Health. When you're making an assessment of someone's ear and hearing health, it is about fundamentally three things. Timper combines otoscopy, audiometry, and also wax removal. We have audiologists who use it, so it's the best audioscope that they've used. Unaddressed hearing loss costs the global economy 980 billion annually. By 2030, Hearing loss is going to overtake diabetes and cataracts in the top 10 disease burdens. They recently closed $23 million Series A fundraising round led by Octopus Venture, looking towards a future where everyone is talking about AI and machine learning. We sit on the world's largest bank of ear and hearing healthcare images and videos. We already have an algorithm that will tell you is that eardrum normal, abnormal. As you're preparing to dive into the US market and start opening up Timper globally, what emotions do you feel currently? It's excitement, but also it's a huge task. We've actually only scratched the surface of what the product can do. I know, Ash, you're already thinking you want to go and get a quick temper assessment just to make sure your hearing is okay. You know what? I might need that done. I get some waxy ears sometimes. Welcome back to Health Beyond Tomorrow. I am joined with Dr. Krishan Ramdu, who is the CEO and founder of Timper Health. So some of you guys might know Timper because they recently closed a $23 million Series A fundraising round, which was led by Octopus Ventures. I reached out to Chris thinking it would be the perfect opportunity to bring him onto the podcast to talk a little bit about how Timper is completely revolutionizing ear care globally. Timper is both a hardware and software solution which combines autoscopy, audiometry, and also wax removal into an all-in-one community ear examination portable kit. It's effectively empowering health professionals to start taking ear care out of hospitals into the community. So in this episode, we'll talk a little bit about the journey of Timber from the very early stages, the initial barriers and institutional barriers that Timber had to overcome to now where they're at with fundraising and now looking to expand globally into US market. If you enjoyed this episode and you have been enjoying my weekly episodes, then please make sure you hit that follow button. It just helps the channel to grow and honestly keeps me super motivated. I saw on the YouTube analytics the other day that actually 80% of you that listen to my episodes week on week aren't subscribed. So please just make sure you hit that follow button, whether it's YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. It's free, so why not? It honestly means the world to me. I was shocked to read that the World Health Organization estimates unaddressed hearing loss actually costs the global economy around 980 billion annually with over half a billion people affected by hearing loss worldwide so i begin this episode by specifically asking krish to take me back to the beginning the moment where he first realized this global immense problem and how he felt to address it with timper without further ado let's get into it and i hope you enjoy hearing loss in itself is it's such a huge public health issue as you mentioned half a billion people in the world with disabling hearing loss and I think if you take it back to the beginning of when I realized it was such an issue was, as you know, you know, I was an ENT surgeon, ear, nasal throat surgeon, used to work with your dad as well. <laughs> and I think in that work there, you start to see the number of patients that you are seeing coming in with hearing loss and unaddressed hearing loss and finding it difficult to access care. And when you culminate that all together and you then look at it from a local level to then think, okay, let's look on a kind of global scale you see how big the issue is and access to care is just a challenge across the globe for something like ear and hearing health it's been an evolving kind of problem which i've addressed but when you dive into it deeper multiple factors that are associated with hearing loss single biggest modifiable risk factor for prevention of dementia you're three times more likely to have a fall and it's intrinsically linked to social isolation so as a problem it's a huge problem 
but also it has multiple other issues that are associated with it as well. I think I'm uniquely placed to understand a little bit more about Timber. As you said, you you, met, you mentioned you used to work with my dad. So take me back to the start when you guys have initially identified this as a huge problem and tell me how the formation of Timber span out and how it's got to where it is today. Yeah, so I think from the early days, very early in my kind of medical career, so I was in practice about 12 and a half, 13 years. And as I was progressing in my early days, I was seeing patients. I had a patient who came into a geriatric ward who was admitted for an infection, but actually subsequently after being treated for the infection, um, me being a budding ENT surgeon, she was still confused, disengaged with the ward. Being an F2, I was the closest people to the family, and they said that had been a problem for the last six, six months or so. So I decided to look in her ears. There was wax. And then I wheeled her down to the department and got her hearing test. And lo and behold, she had age-related hearing loss. Fitted her with a hearing aid and followed up. And it, was, it made a huge impact on her life. And as I subsequently went through my journey as training to be an ENT surgeon, you had to jump through many hoops. But it was fortuitous for me that I ended up, as I moved to London in my higher surgical training, working for your dad, and not making you blush here, but he also shared some of that same vision of where could you look at that solution and problem of ear and hearing health, looking at it more from a global scale. Within that, kind of being given the opportunity to work as, as, as alongside being a ENT surgeon, but have some kind of research time to be able to think outside the box. And from there, that kind of then evolved as me looking at that as a problem and what was fortunate is being able to get some real world feedback from specialists in the in this space to say actually yeah i think what we are working on here has a huge potential to impact the lives of many uh, not just in the local community but actually across the world and i'm interested because you mentioned on the big picture medicine podcast about the transition from initially at the, in the early stages going for grant funding and then transitioning into actually looking for angel investment. And the reason was this was because of some IP disagreements with the NHS. And though I was a little young at the time, I remember dad, my dad telling me all yeah. this was going on at the time. And obviously I was in my teens a little <laughs> bit uninterested. But so it's ironic now that I'm here asking you that question. So tell me a little bit about those problems that happened and about the NHS wanting a significant portion of the company and how you navigated those mm. institutional politics institutional politics is always a challenge and I think even now we want to be that exemplar of how can you actually innovate within the system but also help get scale because sometimes there's a lot of ideas which just falter and me and your dad we collaborated and worked on the grant together him being the kind of principal investigator and it was a real challenge like we we had a huge opportunity to get a grant to help take this project forward and what ended up happening and that wasn't a small amount of money you're talking about 850k and what ends up happening is you're in a system which maybe isn't necessarily used to thinking how can you take that money and evolve it and i'm we're okay with that that saying you work in the nhs you work in your hospital they should have a stake in this enterprise but to start at the scale where you say we want all of it it's never going to motivate or look at the people actually doing the work to actually get them to keep 
motivated, not, not from a financial sense, but actually you want some ownership for the work that you're doing. And so we flipped on its head. It was, we realized that wasn't a way to take it forward. I was able to speak to a network of people and bring forward a, a family office, which is a group of high net worth individuals, very much like the Dragon's Den, pitched them the idea of where we were, where we wanted to get to, and essentially get the first amount of investment, which was more than the grant. And sometimes what you need in the situation is almost another heavyweight to an organization saying, look, this is what we're investing in. These are the terms that we're going to invest on. And that, I think, changed the mindset. And it was extremely hard. Like, I wouldn't underestimate how we ended up having to do that. But to allow us to spin out, and we were always of the mindset that the NHS should benefit from it. So what's a fantastic story is that the Timber Health, the NHS, are a stakeholder in the company. And it's an NHS spin-out, which is almost the way things should be. So I've shortened the challenges, but it was extremely challenging. And I think it was credit to the kind of resilience of the team uh, around that to get through that as well. And setting that example where you aren't giving into all the demands the NHS is asking for, but you know what you are saying, we will give you a shareholding, yeah. which we believe is fair. Setting that example going forward, how, how do you think that's affected in general clinical entrepreneurs now going forward? I think it should be seen as a great example because it's difficult in itself to set up a company and make it successful. Um, it's even more difficult to sometimes spin it out of big institutions and continue to have that drive to make it successful as well. And I think yeah, I was one of the first 10 in the country to appoint to that clinical entrepreneur program. I think that's grown tremendously. And with that, you have mentors at different stages of your journey. And so you, you get mentorship from there as well. And looking at it now, you know, six, six years down from that time, it should be seen as now as Timper grows and continues to grow. And who knows where the end goal necessarily will be. But the, the fact that the hospital and the NHS will benefit from that can only be seen as a positive thing. Yeah, it's fantastic. I was interested to see Professor Andrew Bastoris, who is the founder of the Portable Eye Examination Kit, which is Peak Vision, which is mm. being used in Africa, which has some similarities to Timper. However, was set up as a charity and was crowdfunded. Mm. And this kit was is effectively an eye, eye, exam, eye equivalent of... Yeah, you could Timper argue too, yeah. Yeah, and so, but they developed a charitable model, um, so do you think if Tim adopted the same charitable model, it would have alleviated some of these political challenges? And why or why not did Timper not consider this path? I think that path is in Timper's journey. Like it isn't where we want to get to. I think if I look at the long-term vision of where we want to get to Timper is to be able to deliver a solution. And already, if you take the solution in its current form, it's, it delivers a service. If you took it into those low-income resource countries, it delivers them a service that they never would have thought they would have had access to bringing specialists closer to them and for me and like looking at how we would have wanted to deliver that and why we haven't to date is that what i want to be able to do is deliver a service that when you go that's sustainable and scalable and actually stays within that system and and actually taking the route of fundraising to build a company which then can actually stand on its own two feet so launching it in markets of the uk and then the US gives, for, for me, a, a better chance of us actually going into those low-income resource countries and giving them a service which is actually has real longevity. I'm sure you know what they're doing at Peak Vision 
is definitely having that. But what we're also then able to do is this is longer term thinking, but actually let's say we deliver a service in the UK and the US, it actually just pays for the service that you're going to be seeing in those low income resource countries. The timpers that are kind of in version two, as we build out version three, the version twos can go into those low income resource countries. And I think that's the way to model it. It's, it's sustainable as well from utilizing the systems that we have. So that's why I've gone down that route. And I think if you asked anyone here at the company, everyone knows that's the mission and vision here at Timper. Yeah, fantastic. So tell me a little bit about the Timper kit. Some people will be listening um, over just audio, but if we could visualize it and yeah. talk a little bit about the hardware. I, I was going to, my mom is training um, with the Timper team. To, oh, cool. She's a pharmacist. So yeah. There was one downstairs and I was thinking if I should bring it up, I assume you probably <laughs> have one to show the audience. Yeah. If we could talk a little bit about the hardware and then also the software that Timper is offering because that it, it's often forgotten that it, for Timber to work in function properly, there needs to be a balance between both the hardware and software, Correct. as you were mentioning. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how you're getting these components to seamlessly work together. Yeah, here it is, as you said, as if one, here's one I prepared earlier, but yeah. you, you've got, got the little box that comes together. And essentially when you're making an examination and assessment of someone's ear and hearing health, it is about fundamentally three things. So you want to look inside the ear. So what the Timber does allows you to do high definition otoscopy. And we've got a patented kind of lens system, which allows you to look at that eardrum in high definition. And we have audiologists who use it, so it's the best video scope that they've used. And we've published papers on equally the research element of publishing papers on how good that diagnostic element is. So you've got the otoscopy. otoscopy. We've also got a patented spacing mechanism. So here is the ability to remove wax or infection. And hopefully you can see this is that we built this with a very safety in mind so you're holding your timper and one of the things that people worry about is are you actually going to damage the eardrum but you can see here we've built this so that actually i'm pushing quite hard you actually cannot get down to the tympanic membrane and perforate because it actually physically stops you from doing that the second part is most patients present with saying i think i've got a hearing issue so it comes with a set of headphones which then allows you to do a accurate hearing assessment so four frequencies and all of that then is pulled together into a digital record, which then is where the software comes together, which then allows you to link in with any specialist in any location. And so we have this system where if the end user and we train up, we've got an extremely robust training program. It, it would be interesting to get your mum's feedback on it, but we have excellent feedback. If you look at our Google reviews of what we do is it's not in medicine, it's not see one, do one teach one is actually they have to come on a process so they have webinars they have a learning management system to go through they then come from in-person training day and then we can't watch them in their environment and sign them off and, and the good thing is we actually have no qualms and say actually we think you need some more support and that has all stemmed from my surgical training of how you want to be trained in an appropriate way so we have this process where if you've got a pharmacist a healthcare assistant um, a nurse who isn't sure what they're seeing they can click a button it comes to an internal team of audiologists. If they're not sure what they're seeing, they click another button and it comes to an external team of ENTs who see the history, the image, the video, the audiogram. And with that information, without seeing the patient, can actually give an opinion and advice and guidance as to, yes, needs to go in, it's an infection, or actually you can fit a hearing aid. I think that's the secret source about where we have the software platform around it. Um, which is how it all culminates together. 
Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the software then. How was it getting that perfect? Because obviously it, people are going to be using that software and if the software isn't good, then they're going to think the whole product isn't good despite it being an amazing hardware. Yeah, so I think it was doing them all in, in, in tandem. So you know that you want to upload this information. And what we've done with the software is built it all in-house. So you've got engineers who are very close to the hardware that are literally using it as well and, and practicing to understand how do you hold it, whether it just be focusing on the keyboard or the fake ears that we have here. And I think that was what allowed us to look at this uh, platform, which holds a bit of prehistory. You then have the image and videos and you have the audiogram. But also underneath it has some analytics so that if you have a user, let's say, who isn't using the product enough, it will tell you, oh, this person has not been using it for X number of months. And that, again, with kind of surgical training, let's see a certain number of cases to make sure you're safe to continue practicing. So I think that was something that was inbuilt. And, and the other part of it is that in the last two and a bit, three years, the solution has been used on more than 300,000 patients. We sit on the world's largest bank of ear and hearing healthcare images and videos, about 1.4 million records. And so with that, when you add into the software is machine learning. So as we look to now is we already have an algorithm that will tell you is that eardrum normal, abnormal, poor quality or wax, let's say. And when you're putting that in the hands of the non-specialist, that's another filter that will tell you question mark, we think you need to go and get a second opinion on this, which yeah. then allows it to be fully scalable as well. This might be a difficult question for you to answer. Um, I, I was recently talking with Neil Daly, who's CEO of Skin Analytics, and we were talking about the database they have, dermatological data, database of high quality images. And I asked him the question of where, where does the, where does value in your company lie? Is it in the AI algorithms you created or is it the actual data set? And so I'm going to ask you the same kind of question. So where would you say going forward, looking towards a future where everyone is talking about AI and machine learning, does Timper's value lie? Is it in this largest ear health database set that you're talking about or is it in the hardware? I think it's twofold actually, because actually if you look at the journey and when you encompass like Timper in its current form, it's actually hardware and software and it delivers a service for that end user. And the, the real value was obviously the utilization of the system. There's no point having a system which your customers or clinicians aren't using. So the fact that we have about 30,000 patients a month using that system, we know that there's value created in that because that means that what do we build it for? Better access for care for patients. So we tick that box showing that actually that's the real value chain there that equally the end user that's having it is able to see their patients effectively and let's say if it's in the private sector or in an american model they're charging for that service and in the nhs model because they're being seen outside of hospital it's a cost saving exercise so lots of value created there the data at this stage we are as a company is very untapped but actually where we are we can see tremendous value is as, as we mentioned about all the other issues that hearing loss is associated with. Is there a way that in the future I can say to you, actually, you've got normal hearing here at year one, abnormal hearing at year five. Could I have predicted something earlier to say, actually, you should be doing something earlier? And the WHO have also done a study saying by 2030, hearing loss is actually going to overtake diabetes and cataracts in the top 10 disease burdens. And that's not just because of the aging population. You and I are here, sitting here with AirPods, headphones. The, that's a constant kind of 
almost trauma to the ear canal is only two and a half centimeters. And actually, no one really knows whether it is actually built for that. And I think there's that also group of listening to loud music and going to concerts that's yet to be seen as to what downstream issues that has as well. So I think the data point is, I think there's value creation definitely for us there, how we help support looking at those downstream issues, being involved in clinical trials, predictions of how we can look at things earlier, as well as the service. So hopefully we're creating value across the whole chain there. Yes, definitely exciting stuff. And you talk about prediction there, but obviously that will require more regular screening to be able to predict and have that data for a single person. So tell me a little bit about how you're getting people up and actually going to get their ears checked out. So we obviously provide the solution to providers who deliver ear and hearing healthcare services. I think already before we launched pharmacy was not actually delivering the service. So we've created a brand new market where we've got more than a hundred different community pharmacy chains across the country from small, medium to large, which Community pharmacy is seen as a hub kind of for patients to go and get services. So we support those customers in talking about ear and hearing health. And I think there will be a world in which we're all naturally we're going to get our eyes checked. You know, you look at every year you go and do that. Why should you not be doing that with your hearing as well? And I think that comes with the kind of destigmatization of that. And I'd probably say we're doing a lot of work in the US and you know they've just launched this new FDA ruling of over-the-counter hearing aids, which is for mild to moderate hearing loss. So you can have these things like AirPods or AirPod-like um, devices which actually support with your hearing. And there's already destigmatization. Like you could walk down the street and someone have these AirPods in your ear as an example, and you wouldn't know whether they have a hearing loss or not. And I think we are supporting in driving more people to, for access to care. And I think as we help in our mission of making it more accessible to patients, I think that will naturally mean that people start to think more about your ear and hearing health. I know, Ash, you're already thinking you want to go and get a quick temper assessment just to make sure your <laughs> hearing is okay. <laughs> you know what? I've seen those videos that you, um, you guys post on LinkedIn with someone sitting down at a conference, getting their ears checked out, and then just like a fat clump of wax will be yeah. out of their ear. <laughs> the wax, the like, wax you know what? is very I engaging. Thought, yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know what? I might need that done. I get some waxy ears sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, you talk a little bit about America there and going to the US. And you, a big congratulations. You recently closed your Series A 23 million fund raise round that was led by Octopus Ventures. Mm. And so I, I, my question is to you, as you're preparing to dive into the US market and also to start opening up globe, Timper globally, what emotions do you feel currently you as the ceo it's such it's excitement i think the the thing is if you look at as we started at the beginning i think it's a real excitement of how we can go and deliver the solution over there and um i think you can have that excitement but also it's a huge task and so with that comes you could say a little bit of trepidation as to how you're going to navigate that i think that trepidation goes away when you look at how you bring the right people along the journey with you and you build a team around you that can help support in delivering kind of the mission and vision that you have. And it's, yeah, I think it's a challenge from, if you could ask my wife, like you've got the UK working hours and then in the, you have a bit of time with the children, then the US start calling in. So it's a fine balance between how you manage all of that, but it's very exciting, very exciting. 
Yeah, it's definitely very exciting stuff. And so, so tell me, how are you managing that? What kind of personal sacrifices <laughs> have you been going through with obviously bringing Timper firstly to life and now scaling it throughout the world? Um, what, what would your wife say firstly? Give your wife's um, answer <laughs> and then give your answer. <laughs> I think I think she... It's, so my wife's a doctor as well. And I think she certainly is medics who are not shy of hard work. So I think she knows that it's extremely challenging. And I think it's a mindset change of the impact that you're having now. The amount of hundreds of thousands of patients that Timper is seeing, I personally wouldn't have been able to see that as a, as a clinician. So I think you could ask her, it depends, it's probably depending what mood she's in. I guess it's more the fact of the balance, because I think in answer to how she's feeling, how I'm feeling, I think with anything in life, when you're starting up a company, and I think you, you've spoken to a lot of startup founders in your podcast and probably in as you've been going on this new journey is it's incredibly difficult you have to learn and one of the biggest things which i think is i've really talked about is the balance is balance really it's like how do you balance everything because you have to balance the what you're doing on day-to-day from a working life you throw into the mix children you throw into life another half and then i think it's just trying to make sure you get you balance all those spinning plates and it's always difficult to you want to be good at everything and a hundred percent at everything. And I think if you can get near to kind of 80 to 90% of that, I think it, it will always mean in the long run that actually you are still moving forward. But personally, yeah, personal sacrifice, I think it's just time, isn't it? There's never enough time in the day. And it's just, it's, it's how do you manage all of that together? Because you want to be there for everything. You want to be there for the exciting things that are happening in the company. You don't want to miss things with your children. And uh, you need to have time for yourself as well. Yeah, I think I'm balancing it all right at the moment. As I said, you can, I, I don't know what she would say. <laughs> My wife, as we're talking about her, but yeah, I think she'd say that there is balance that's there. Yeah. No, I was going to say when, obviously, when I last saw you was a couple of years ago, but you haven't started to get any gray hairs. So yeah, yeah, I'm still, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the kid. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> yeah. So from that, I probably, because you probably could say that you are balancing everything okay at the moment. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> So you've obviously gone through ENT training, mm. got to a very senior position and then decided what was it, SD7, SD6 six, yeah, to six, step yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. SD6 to step out, then you started doing GP training for, to become correct. a GP. Yeah, correct, yeah. Then you stepped out again. Yeah. And so all these pivots that have happened, reflect on your journey a little bit. Is there any point of regret throughout those journeys? Do you ever wish, you, do you ever sit there at an ENT conference with all these professors, all these surgeons mm. and kind of wish this, this could have been me? I do. I think when you look back, at, certainly in the ENT, because I think I was very dedicated to that that group and kind of like cohort. And what's been really good is you still keep in touch with all of those colleagues and with your dad and others as well, who I went through the journey with. And actually that pivotal point, I think, was stepping away from ENT was quite a big step because actually that was what my career path was going to be. But what was helpful was you speak to that moment in time, you're, you're speaking to colleagues, say, what would you think? And then there was a camp who would be like, what are you doing? And then mentioning it, I suppose your dad was one of them, plus others who were like, Chris, you don't want to look back in five years' time and regret what could have been. And I think now, fast forward, the reasons for pivots were at the time when it was an ENT, you're trying to you know, do ENT training. I had my first child was born, trying to finish writing a PhD. So many, and they have a company and someone writing a big check to say, look, try and grow this product. You then fast forward when you move into GP training, you then raise some more money and you can see something moving. 
And I think at that moment in time, which was actually just over three years ago, three years ago, I was still built on doctor. It's crazy to think the growth now. And you, I think at that moment in time, I knew that the, this could become something special. And then it was about focusing. And actually, now I look back and think, if I hadn't have done that and hadn't fully focused, you can now see the company really going on that big trajectory. And if I look back, you never, I think in anything, you can never look back with regret. But I think what you miss, if anything, is the camaraderie amongst that cohort that you work and train with. I think it's difficult now as you sit as a CEO, as a leader in that organization. Yes, I've got a fantastic leadership team, but still the buck stops with yourself as to how you make those decisions. Whereas the nice thing in the camaraderie and I guess in medicine is that you would make a decision collaboratively and you'd get different opinions, which you do here as well. But essentially, you'd also have that evidence base. Sometimes in a startup world, you've got to go with your gut rather than evidence, which sometimes you can say happens in medicine, but there's, it's a lot more evidence-based medicine. And, and now I think as we, we've grown up as a company, it's much more data-driven as well because we've built that data. Whereas in the early days, you've got to be, yeah, I think this is the right decision to go down. Yeah. It was, I think it was Dr. Abdullah Albiati who he, mm. he also trained yeah, I know. Um, yeah. during the e ENT program and then decided to step out. And he, he summarized it perfectly. He said, I don't have any regret. I don't look back. I don't regret anything. But you know what? Sometimes my ego does hurt a little bit when I see all these top surgeons because he trained, he trained to become an ENT. That was his world. And then he stepped back and he yeah. thought, you know, what could have been, <laughs> which I found funny. And so you, you mentioned the words special there. And that leads perfectly onto my next question because you also talk a little bit about serendipity, about being in the right place at the right time. And so tell me a little bit about how serendipity has come into play in the success of Timber. And I guess my follow-up is also about the four types of luck and what you feel played the most significant role in your journey. And if I maybe could break down the four types of luck mm. for you, I, I wrote a little blog post on this. I'll link that in the description. But number one is blind luck. So that is just events that are left up to fate. We don't mm. really have any choice in them. Number two is luck from hustling. So you're going to more events, you're basically forcing the universe hand. Number two is recognized luck. So it's effectively you as an entrepreneur spotting a business idea mm. because of your unique experience. And number four is your luck from unique character, which I guess is from hard work, dedication, resilience, grit, stuff like that. So tell me a little bit firstly about serendipity and then also those four types of luck and how that's played into your journey. So I think you could also argue that serendipity and luck have been intertwined. Yeah. And I think at different stages of my career and different stages of temper, I think serendipity and luck have played a role. And I think in those four types of luck, I think it's been a mix of each of them. You definitely have to have the hustle. You've got to have that drive. You've got to have the ability to win and talk to people and engage with people to understand where you are. But also you have to have pure luck on your side as well to be at the right place at the right time. And as I said, early in the early stages in ENT, working for a consultant who understood the, the journey that I wanted to go on and could recognize some of that talent was incredibly helpful for me to be able to be like, you know what, yeah, you know, you can have that time to go and do that. And then you take it to the next stage when you're looking at raising some money and you meet investors who also buy into that and give you a different type of mentorship and also can believe in where you think the company can go. And I think that has, and as we've got different 
let's say investors, but even different customers and people that we're partnering with, I think you have to, I do probably the theme around that is you still have to build your own luck as well. I don't think you can ever rely on something just happening and trying to be in the right place. You're, you are without a doubt the master of your own destiny and you know that there's going to be times when you've really got to really focus on an issue or understand a, a problem to be like, here's a huge opportunity. And then you've got to understand that in your own mind to then create your luck to be in the right place at the right time to talk to someone about that opportunity and make them believe in that as well. So I don't know whether that fully answers your your, your question, but I think it's a, a mix of everything and you fundamentally i think it does boil down to yourself that you have to be the one driving that for those factors whichever form of luck that falls you have to be the the driver of that in my opinion it's interesting yeah it's a great answer it's interesting because as i'm on my journey early stages of my journey i've seen that obviously being at the right place at the right time is great but it's actually capitalizing on those opportunities making Mm. a good impression and actually getting those opportunities in the first place is all about hustling obviously going to Mm. networking events and attending events but equally at the same time a lot of what i've realized so far is it's about guidance and mentorship Mm. and i've been in very fortunate positions early on in my career where I've been mentored by really great people in the space, really uh, knowledgeable people. So tell me a little bit about how, along with this serendipitous luck we've just talked about, how mentorship and guidance has also played a role in Timper's growth and success. Yeah, like I said, I think in in the, like when I was talking about the previous thing, I think it's just different stages. You get different support and mentorship for the different stages that you're at. And I think it's always important to recognise where that support has come in and how it's been helpful and one of the things now that I think is if I look at today I think that journey has happened and you have different mentors at different stages who support you at different stages of your career and you'll find the same you'll almost have where you're like okay I'm trying to figure out how to grow in this domain then you solve that you're like how do I grow in another domain and I think if I take the journey here at Timper at this stage now so what I always was trying to look at was also continue to have the mentors that you have but actually look how am I going to take Tim or myself personally to the next stage so it's almost looking at the person who is that one stage ahead of you because almost saying how did they get there and if they can do that then I can do it and I think that's what I have done is build a network of other founder CEOs who are that one or two steps ahead so what has what is apparent is that some of the challenges that we face or the questions that I have they have, without a doubt, in some form or another, had a very similar one. So having someone who's taken that path before you is helpful. And I've even also tried to think that as how you build that in your team, to look at the qualities and skills that you ha- I have as an individual. What can I really excel at? But what are the things which I know that I need some support with? So bolt those individuals around you to help you with that. And even that can be the case with, with mentorship as well. Yeah. And how are you positioning yourself for you and your team to level up and get to that step where you're two, three levels above where you want to be? I think I, I, I tell the team all the time, we are at a junction point, a moment in time where we really can lead the way. And I think the way I trust it, obviously lead by example, I have a really common theme here that everyone in the company has a voice. So even new members who come in, how do they should not feel scared about giving their opinion. And I think it's always hiring the best people you can afford to hire and also people who will challenge 
you as well as the leader in the business so crucially have been doing this for so you've been doing it this way for so long have you thought about why and as provided i can provide with a very clear answer as to why then i think people get it but if i'm questioning somebody well, yeah, why are we doing that then it only makes us level up as individuals and, and, and as a company as well yeah great advice and so where do you see earcare being in 10 15 years what is your I- ideal world and that figure i said at the start where half a billion people are affected by hearing loss and it's been you said it's linked to increased falls social isolation and it's the biggest modifiable risk factor for dementia where do you see in the next 10 15 years that number slowly decreasing and it affects people less and less i think fundamentally it's access when you look at that half a billion people in the world is that there's just limited access to specialists, limited access to, to, to get care. And I think that's where five to 10 years, it's normalizing getting an ear and hearing assessment. These assessments we're doing with Timper will tell you within 20 minutes where is your hearing okay, or actually there's something that needs to be checked and gets you to the point of where you need to get to sooner. Whereas if you look at ear and hearing healthcare at the moment, it takes someone almost five to seven years to think about doing something about their hearing. So I think by us in that position of making it more accessible, making people think about it and say, actually, it's just a quick assessment. Whereas I think the stigma is, oh, if we get a hearing test, I'm definitely going to need hearing aids. People have that stigma attached to it. I think if we play a role, whatever, however big or small that role is in making it more accessible and, and destigmatizing, getting an ear and hearing health assessment, I think, That'd be a great journey for us in the next five to 10 years. But I genuinely believe we will be part of that. But there will be others that will help us change the way ear and hearing healthcare is delivered in the next five to 10 years. And for us, it's about how we do that. We can't do that on our own. I think it's about partnerships to enable us to really scale. Yeah, fantastic. And as we close the podcast up, Chris, where do you see Timper in the next five years? So now, obviously, with uh, you having fundraised uh, Series A, how, how is that money going to be allocated to get Timber to at, at that next stage that you're talking about? So I think the, the way that you want to, that's some good money that you've raised to enable us to, one, continue to execute here in the UK, continue to evolve and develop the product. We've actually only scratched the surface of what the product can do. And I think, obviously, a lot of that is also to scope out and step foot into the US we want to get it right in the US. We're going to be very strategic, very focused on how we deliver that service in the US. And then following on from there is we look and grow and scale there, then looking at another market outside of that. And then the end goal will be, how do you go and deliver this service? As I said earlier, sustainably and scalably in those low income resource countries. And, you know, and if we achieve all of that, I think I will be sitting back here thinking we've, we've done a great thing. Yeah, I think your wife will be happy at that point, right? So. <laughs> She's on the journey. She's on the journey. <laughs> Chris, it's been amazing having you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Ash. It's been a pleasure.